You're listening to the Loose Stokes podcast. Real and inspiring conversations with individuals from all over the world, sharing their insights in sustainability, fashion, conscious consumerism, and empowerment. Be inspired to take action and be the change you want to see in the world. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Lou Stokes podcast. Today on the show, I'm very lucky to have Miro Mikasik. Welcome, Mira. Thank you so much for coming on to chat with me today. How are you? I'm well, thank you, and it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Mira. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, give a bit of your background, and then we can talk about your own kind of personal fashion, sustainable fashion journey, and go from there. Excellent. And I I think I'm kind of not unique in the way that there, I think there, I'm part of this global community of people that probably five or six years ago for 2017, it was me, I kind of had this awakening for want of a better word, but it's almost coming full 360. And I'll start with, I was actually born in Croatia um, and I come from um, generations really of farmers who lived very sustainably, who understood the importance of soil and land management. And really, um, the other piece I think that links to fashion, which is really dear to my heart is the fact that I come from generations of females, which you would understand, uh, Lou, coming from Europe, there is such a historical legacy of this beautiful craftsmanship that's always been handed down from one generation to another. Um, and this beautiful skill set that exists, you know, in Asian communities has does as it does in uh, European communities. So there were skills, sewing skills and knitting skills and all these skills that were passed down to me. And then um, when I was five, like many families, my family uh, migrated to Australia. And so I've lived in a very Western and very, very developed world culture. So my, um, my life really from then was a very, and my career was very corporate led. So my career has really, I've been very grateful to have a very international career and being able to lead uh, business strategy, customer marketing, product, and digital transformation, um, you know, for uh, many different sectors, so financial services through to um, hospitality, retail, and technology. So um, I kind of feel I have been, and there's not a lot of narrative in terms of, you know, the donut economy now, as well as, um, you know, degrowth and capitalist, you know, and GDP and all these things. And I almost feel as though my career up until the last six years has been spent part of this very capitalist and industrialist engine. And, you know, back in 2017, I basically had this, I had just stepped out of an Asia Pacific role. And I think sometimes when we work in a particular industry, we almost become a little bit siloed. And yeah. it wasn't until I kind of stopped and I read some headlines around what was happening in the fashion sector. And, and I, it's, it's interesting when I hear other speakers now, they almost had the same epiphany around that, you know, two, 2017 time, which I find really interesting. And for me, I was just, I felt as though I was living under rock. How did I not know the, that this particular industry sector, who I've always had such an affinity with from a personal point of view in terms of fashion and, you know, heritage and things. How did I not know how 
you know, the lack of transparency, the lack of, um, you know, accountability that this sector had. And for me, coming out of very highly compliant industries, I just, I just couldn't understand that. And, you know, I think your podcast, you know, and various guests document very well, you know, all of the, you know, there's so much systematic, systemically wrong. And I don't want to even use that word. It's a pathway that we got to. And I think there's so much opportunity going forward. Um, and we just reached a tipping point where the current business model is just so broken from an end to end journey in terms of supply chain, whether you look at, you know, the women who actually produce our clothing, you know, and the slave labor and all the rest of them, the toxic chemicals and, you know, um, there is so much up and I, I'm sure we'll get into some of this, so I'm not going to belabor that. So, mm -hmm. um, so after I, I guess realizing what was happening there, I, my mother, you know, when we migrated to Australia, she was a seamstress, you know, so I had that affinity with the, and I remember also, um, one of the, my parents have both passed away in the last uh, five years, but I always remember, you know, mum's, you know, this sense of pride that she could actually, as a female, contribute. And there's certain things, it's just my sister and I in the family, and there's certain things that she had such pride because of her work that she had done as an individual woman um, that she could, you know, we have beautiful dining sets that we still hold on to very dearly and other things that, um you know, she was able. So I, I feel that women who actually work in the sector um, and produce all these amazing clothes, you know, um, we need to care for them and, you know, celebrate the work that they do and the opportunity they have. So one of the other things that I, which I'll uh, close off, and one of the other things that alarmed me was also, you know, we went kind of from um, very localised making of garments, um, and you know personalization of garments and then we went to mass production and mass production meant that we went to these large-scale factories but it wasn't only it's probably only 50 years ago we had a very decentralized model so in the con and i don't know whether this happened in europe but you know so i think we've all seen it where manufacturing has just been you know sent offshore um, so my analogy to that working in large multinationals organizations forever are looking for cost efficiencies and that's okay and sometimes they centralize next team gets in they decentralized and a good example of this is when globally organizations decided to you know um, send offshore all of their outbound and inbound call centers and you know five years later you know a lot of them found that culturally it didn't work and they had to bring it in so I feel as though we've almost reached that tipping point where we centralized and offshored too much and we're kind of at that tipping point. And how do we rebalance it now in terms of going back to more local? And for me, I think what I've found in terms of even setting up our own business, the and even I think of, you know, Europe, a lot of offshoring was done in Europe and sadly, um, what that meant we've lost some of that local skill set so even if we want to onshore the local skill set we have to rebuild um that skill set yeah. locally so Absolutely. and i'm going off on a tangent because this topic i can talk about forever and ever and i know every guest kind of says that 
but so for me, it led me to think, my gosh, if I'm going to actually do something in this sector, I don't want to actually just um, do something to solve for part of it. I want to solve the whole lot, you know, so <laughs> coming from a systems point of view. And I know that sounds absolutely crazy. And I know, you know, there's some wonderful work being done in terms of, and I've worked with and supported organizations who are doing, you know, rental and have done wonderful things with rental, who've done wonderful things with resale. So I don't want to take away from those. Um, but for me, it was kind of, well, that's all well and good, but the challenge is I need to actually solve the, the root cause. I don't want to just clean up. And I heard a wonderful, and do you know what I mean? Yeah, There's absolutely. a wonderful, uh, analogy and it was by one of um, who you would know well um, by one of Ellen um, MacArthur's team from Circular Economy and who gave the analogy of uh, relating to fast fashion was well in the scenario where you actually have you know uh, a bathroom uh, the bathtubs overflowing with water what do you grab first do you grab a mop and start mopping or do you actually go and taper down, you know, and, you know, solve it at the root cause. And I feel yeah. as though with fast fashion, there's all these wonderful startups who are getting out their mops and doing as much as they can with their mops. But until we turn the tap down, mm. there's just no way all these wonderful startups and it doesn't matter how many of them, we, we just won't be able to keep pace if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, like, I always often think, to myself, okay, what is the root cause? Because there's mm. kind of all these layers to this root yes. cause. Um, it's not just one thing or one body or mm. one system. It's like a network of of things. And, and it's, you know, a mix of compliance and laws and regulations Um mindset shifts mm. um kind of stopping and reflecting rather than just chugging out all this stuff um, yes just because i mean i obviously there's demand because people are buying so brands keep chugging it out but that's not an excuse mm. um and i i remember i talked with katia about this it's quite complicated because a lot of people say well the consumer needs to stop buying but then but then the consumer doesn't have that much information like we have information because we're constantly you know we're involved in all of and educating stuff. yeah exactly but you know just an average person that you know doesn't work in the industry and just you know goes about their daily life and goes and buys clothes like they often don't have much of an idea of what yeah. goes on behind yeah. and the same happened with the food industry and then exactly all sudden, you know shift of where you know what you're eating is actually you know vital and that we've been eating you know all these different chemicals and yes and things and so you know I think as a society we're waking up but there's a lot of work to do to unpick oh. and that's just... why I think I, I think you're you're absolutely right I think there are so many wonderful and a lot of the industry is starting to use the term actors there are a lot of mm. wonderful actors and it needs a it definitely needs a systemic approach and it definitely needs collaboration and all of these you know the regulators to do their part 
um, the owners who are producing or the companies who are producing these products, just like any other industry need to be accountable for. So in the case, you know, for example, in the case of the financial services industry, there are industry bodies that actually regulate that, you know, we do the right thing, um, you know, from a consumer point of view. So, um, but you're right. I think there, I think what's, what excites me the most is the fact that things have really accelerated, you know, versus 2017 when I've kind of, the community just wasn't out there. And I yeah. feel as though in the last, you know, especially the last two years, the awareness levels have just, and obviously COVID has had an element of accelerating that. But I also feel, you know, I'm excited to actually be speaking with you and that there is this, you know, international cohort of people who are trying to, you know, educate and inform and just genuinely and authentically, you know, try to enable the movement um, where, you know, the direction of where we need to go. And, and, um, and that's really inspiring because it kind of, there isn't that competition and I don't think it's about competition anymore. And I, that kind of makes me really joyous and excited about that. And I'm glad you mentioned Katja. She actually just reminded me, I think she did a post yesterday and she write quite correctly, ended up highlighting, um, something that Olivia Firth said probably about 10 years ago when she was on panel um, on and talking to H&M. And she talked about the fact that, you know, when we talk about responsibility in the consumer and one of the things that Olivia had highlighted was, well, you know, there are some analogies when you mention them to the food industry, you know, the fast fashion is, is a bit like sugar, you know, And there is a wellness aspect to it. And that's part of what we try to communicate as a brand. I just think that the industry sector also needs to beyond the toxins in terms of some that are within some of the fibers and the microplastics and so on. I think when it comes in the context of women, there is a mental health issue around there as well. And that's one of the things that we are hoping to and it's not just mental health, it's also financial prosperity. So if you look at women, we know that they earn less, you know, there is that gap, but with the, with the veracity of the need to um, continually be up with the trends, what that invariably means is that some of the stats around how much women spend on clothing versus men, is something like, you know, per year is around 230% more. Okay. Which once again, impacts their longer term, you know, financials as well, let alone what that does to, you know, girls mental health and with social media and everything. And for us, um, what our brand tries to also solve for is by creating clothing on demand as and when people need them in natural Mm -hmm. fibers, you know, it eliminates the waste, but what it does, it makes um, clothing or fashion more accessible because at the moment, what we know also globally is that 50% or not 50% of women in some cases, depending on what stats you read are actually inc- excluded from accessing clothing because sizes stop yeah. at 12 to 14. Yeah. 
And this, you know, from a customer point of view, when I coming from very customer led roles, before I ever launched a product, before I wanted to influence where the brand strategy went, it was always about let's get into focus groups, let's get into quant qual studies, what's out there. I've sat through, you know, across different countries and cultures, over 300, you know, <laughs> um, focus groups, really just trying to get in the headspace of what consumers need. And this is and this is the interesting thing for me coming into this industry sector, and I think also an opportunity where the industry is so design led and kind of top down. Yeah, it's the only industry that really doesn't concern themselves with what the consumer may need or want. It's it operates almost on a buffet level. Well, here's the next buffet. Take from it what you want. If there's nothing there. You know, doesn't matter. Wait, wait around for the next one. So I feel that um, not many other industry sectors, you know, apply it that way. And it's a very trans. I find it a very transactional industry because where I've in the industry sectors where I've worked, it's about the largest cost in any business is to acquire a customer. Okay, and you always want to get your cost of acquisition down. And then there's this layer, once we have them, we want to nurture them across that customer journey at mm -hmm. every single touch point. We know that we are at risk of actually losing that customer, you know, um, and we want to ensure that our brand is consistent in how we engage with. Yeah, well, this particular industry doesn't really um, look at customer in, in terms of their lifetime value. And I think that's an opportunity going forward. Um, just like, you know, there's an opportunity to look at clothing in terms of the product lifetime value. So let's not just produce it once. What can we do to extend the life of that clothing? And in doing that, also extend the revenue that we might be able to derive from it, uh, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do, do you find that um, with Simple Chic that, people are consumers are open to this on-demand fashion concept yeah you know it's interesting um and this goes back to education women don't know where to go so even in terms of repairing their clothes and i remember how one particular lady um eva she was so joyous she went out on her facebook and said i'm going I've got my mother's, she, she was actually from Germany. She went to, back to Germany and she got this beautiful um, old vintage dress from her mom, but she had to have it altered. And she was desperately trying to find someone who could actually do that for her via Facebook. And then she came across us. And I just find, oh my gosh, there is, and I don't know whether it's different in Europe, but there is such a lack of knowledge of where to go. And one of the most popular things that even to buy fabric here in Australia, people don't know where to go. And one of the most popular services that we have is around, um, I've just, I've, and every woman in her wardrobe has two or three pieces that are her go-tos that you wear them to death and then you can never find them again. Or in some yeah. cases, women buy two or three of them because they know that they'll never find them. So one of the most popular things that we have is people, women come back to us and say, I have 
this pair of pants or I have this shirt or dress. Can you remake that for me? And can you remake it in this fabric? So I, I think there's, um, there's so much education, I think, across the board where people, um, you know, 50 years ago used to have, just like we have our local hairdresser, you know, mm -hmm. where I'm going with this, people used to have their local, and once again, Olivia Ferb, she talks about, and sometimes she posts about her, her seamstress down the road, who she adores, who she's known, just like she's known her, you know, hairdresser for years that she keeps going back to and to, for her alterations or upcycling and, and so on. If I have a vision, I would love, our vision is to really reconnect women with other women who make their clothes, you know, and just like we have any other relationship and where there isn't this um, self-consciousness about this number and size and how my number and size fluctuates. Because I, I think if we get it right from the outset and they have someone uh, locally that they can connect with and there isn't that shame associated with clothing, Fashion is joyous. I've always, you know, growing up, I've absolutely loved it. My, you know, I've always wanted to find something unique, um, which is sometimes hard to do in a mass-produced yeah, um, style now. But, um, but I, I think there, I, I, I think, I think we're going to get there, Lou. I, I just think it's taken us to you know to now to really start to adopt and accept rental to start to adopt um and purchase and, and you know use clothing um so i think it's just kind of i almost see it as a bit of a staged approach um because certainly we can't educate consumers on everything no at the same time so i think it's a journey um yeah. and i think the infrastructure needs to be there because, you know, and I'll finish on the point of regulators, I think in the context of if we are to support local industry, there are certain regulatory things that need to change. And in the context of Australia, I think only 5% of the clothing that we wear in Australia is actually produced locally. Okay. So we have 95% being imported in. And one of the biggest factors that has allowed that to flow through is the, the fact that you know, 20 years ago, tariffs were around to import were around, um, you know, 20, 25 percent. Yeah. Even in the last five years, they've been reduced to five percent. Mm -hmm. So you, there needs to also be things that, you know, protect the consumer from, you know, toxic things that they're going to be wearing. You need to have regulation that's going to, um, you know, protect the local industry and um, help the local industry thrive again. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because with all this importing, it's just killed, like we talked about before, all the local businesses, really. Yes. And like you said, restarting like that again. And, you know, where are these seamstresses that, you know, maybe some of them are not even here anymore. And so there's this new generation that doesn't really have much of an idea because they're more technological. So it's like, how do we cultivate um this um craft yes so that we can then you know build in our local communities and economies and rather than relying on you know on outsourcing 
or importing is that even with covid we realized that like oh i can't get such and such now because it's coming from china or whatever and so it's like well actually maybe you know maybe there's something wrong with what we've been doing all along you know and going back to our grandparents who you know they probably had 10 items maybe of clothing but all were very well made and by the seamstress and they were you know they didn't have this angst as well to have more um because i think like you said with um fast fashion being like sugar it's like this addiction where Mm. you start and then Mm. you can't stop yeah no absolutely and i think what you what you were just saying people hello lou i think i've lost you no we're here we're here oh and i think um also what's happened is the era that you were mentioning people actually valued their clothing and the the whole art and the craft around it and you know i always you know think about we uh when you look back at the photographs of people in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s you know maybe not the 60s but how how immaculate does everyone look everyone looks absolutely unique and individual and and I'm not quite sure what we're going to say when we actually see some of the photos of the last 20 years. That would be interesting too. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see actually. Yeah. I thought about that. But the other, the other thing I think, which if, if you think of fashion, fashion is culture and art. It has so much history. And I feel as though with globalization, um and centralization of factories and fashions become vanilla you know i i think we've lost that beautiful cultural overlay so when i actually see other brands who are you know recycling old embroidered tablecloths and making you know a beautiful garments and dresses from that and there is this product preciousness that there that's embedded that has a new life again so i if I do have another wish in terms of the the future, I just, we can't lose the craft and the cultural richness because, you know, some of my favorite, I think of some of my favorite brands, you know, um, you know, you think of China, you think of silk, I think of Shanghai Tang and I think of some of the beautiful suits that I had. There is some uniquely uh, shaped and formed, uh, garments that are just, you know, if I, if I, if I think of South America, my gosh, the richness of natural colors and oh my gosh, it just brings a smile to my face when you see some of the women in the Andes and the craftsmanship and the weaving and the color, it's joyous, you know? Um, and I would love to, you know, I'm all for merging of cultures, but how do we, you know, how do you just integrate some of that craft and that culture into into the new um, and the future without losing it? Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, I, th- I think it's vital that we do that as well because it's, we, we can't lose the essence of what design and fashion really are. And like you said, it is like vanilla. It's like everyone's kind of, I don't know, there's just no, there's not personality to it anymore. There's not... Yes well there is in some ways but in others there's not and it's like people end up just looking at a magazine or instagram and going oh, i want that outfit and i'm you know yes. click and, <laughs> and i think there's 
there are certain influences probably that haven't helped you know and which kind of makes me sad also you know um and each to their own but I, you know i you think of the kim kardashian effect you know we don't all be lookalikes in terms no. of physical form and and i'm not even going to say anything about the new you know nipple top and stuff like that no. you know and i i think some of these influences and people who have an audience have such an opportunity you know and when you don't and you and you only see that used in terms of their own financial prosperity versus yeah. the broader opportunity um and i guess we all have our awakenings at different different times which is which is fine but i think if we could have some of those key influences have a bit of an epiphany or an awakening I, I think it would help our acceleration to where we want to go um, ultimately as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. I agree with you there. It's like there's this opportunity for people to really use their platforms, even brands as well. They have, yes. you know, they have a lot of influence and there's this huge opportunity for us to really, you know, um, shift and change the way things are mm. being done. But yeah, we, you know, I feel like give it a few more years, maybe, and we'll see yes. a completely different kind of, um, yeah, a different kind of way of doing things, especially with influences, influences. Absolutely. And I think just educators, educators, educators like you, I think of Katya doing her research. I think of Claire Press, who's been an amazing voice who's Australian yeah. and English, uh, you know, Cynthia, who I've spoken to recently, who you've spoken to, you know, the wonderful work that she's, she's leading. So I, I think there are these different people who are all looking at it, you know, through a different lens, all, all of which is valued and trying to, you know, support a different shift. So I think if we can continue to have some of these open conversations, um, and you know expand some of the roles that we can all have it but it is I, I think it's a it's a staged journey uh definitely and i think what i'd love to start talking to i think there are some cultures that are just still doing it right i was l recently listening to something uh, else um actually by i think it was a, a uk lady speaking to a french model and what i and i actually worked for a core plus uh, uh a core so i i would go to Paris, France in the, you know, over a five year period annually. And I, and I obviously worked for a big global French company and American pre prior to that, but something that I didn't, I didn't understand till actually just recently. And the conversation went something like this. So what do French, so do French women go to the gym and the response from the French model, her mum, I think was French and her dad was English. And she goes, yes, of course they go to, you know, the gym. And what do they wear to the gym? Oh, no, no. She said, no, the French women don't, they go to the gym, but they do not talk to talk about going to the gym. So what do they wear? Well, you know, do they wear their active wear? And the answer was no, you know, they put on their active wear when they're at the gym and then they take it off and then they go. We're in Australia. Everyone is living in active way. And I think it's yeah, an interesting yeah. thing. You know? And I think, well, we could learn something from there. And then the conversation went, which I loved as well. And you think of, you know, when we think of catwalks and we think of annual shows and seasonal shows, we think of, you know, the runways in, in Paris and Milan. 
And what was interesting was, was when she talked about, well, the French women have their own sense of style. They do not follow trends. And I can see you nodding your head. And I think, oh my gosh, here's what we kind of see as the capital of the world. And here is women who actually live more true to themselves in terms of the fashion sense uh, and probably more sustainably because it's about they've already defined their own style and what works for them and are, and are not on this fashion treadmill and probably are not spending as much as other cultures are. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And I, I think there's something that we can take away from from that. Um, because if I had a wish for any woman, I want her to feel comfortable in her own skin and, you know, not to be worried about what she's wearing and just to be, you know, um, you know, when you're wearing something that you don't have to adjust it, you know, it fits beautifully and it's just your go, you don't actually think about what you're wearing. There is just this innate sense of confidence when you put it on and it's like your power suit because it is just the sense of feeling that it's innately you and for some reason it's very comfortable so I wish that for all women I want them to feel comfortable in their own skin and you know for for them just to be able to find their own style journey without having this constant oh my gosh you know um what others are feeling and saying publicly and media and so on Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, Europe and Europe is more a bit more about their own style. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of trend followers here. But, mm. um, I feel like people are very much more into their own personal style, mm. especially now more than before. I think people have shifted a lot since COVID as well in the way they think about their clothes and what they wear and what suits them. And they're not so caught up in trends. Um, I think there is a shift with that as well, but it's interesting what you say about the French. It's like, what I find interesting is that like, you know, Paris is one of the, you know, fashion capitals of the world. Yet the French women are like, no, we, we do our own thing, you know? And it's like, I love it. Yeah, that's like exactly what fashion is, you know. So it's like yes. it, it's just ironic that it's you people look at it like that. And I don't know whether many people, I don't know how many people actually know that. So I, I, I think there, and I, I think that's it. I think there are different things which I've always, you know, travelled a lot for work culturally, and I, um, I, I'm sure there is lessons from other cultures that we can actually just, you know, take on board um, as learning as we go through getting back to where we can't, you know, what is the new sense of balance where, you know, for yeah. all of us. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Mira, just to um, finish off, what would you say your vision of the future is for fashion? I've lost Oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. I can hear you now. <laughs> it probably falls into um, three three categories. And the first I'm going to say has to be linked, um, you know, to women and 
and the first one is and and this is i guess in terms of our vision and our vision also in my long-term vision and what we're trying to create with simple chic as well is number one um the the current model is broken in terms of these huge um factories where people are just crammed in so i'd love for us to rebalance that and for for, for the women that we support, I see us supporting, and which is the only thing we do, we support independent, independent women designers and makers in local communities. So those micro businesses, I'd love to see those thrive again. And they just don't get enough funding because the reality is, which is ironic for the women's apparel industry, 60% of the garments that are actually designed are designed by men, not by women. So women micro businesses don't have a chance to succeed given the you know current model so we want to support those and reconnect the consumers with them so they actually have someone to go to and what that does for us is two things because we're creating and enabling and supporting employment opportunities for independent women designers and micro business we want them to thrive um, while at the same time you know enabling them to support women um, in terms of you know creating clothing on demand that's relevant to them um, yeah. and what that does for people's mental health and once that connection happens then you know it's a natural transition can you repair this for me or can you upcycle it can you remake it because I just can't find it anywhere and I think what that does for women's um, for the women consumers and their mental health it saves time, you know, this, just this constant searching of trying to find something and just being able to quickly get to what you need. Um, so that, you know, so we've got a very much a female led model around how we want to support consumers and female micro businesses. The other piece is just natural fibers. You know, I've, I've grown up with natural fibers. My mother, um, you know before we migrated here she actually grew hemp she turned hemp into fiber into sheets and other things so i've always worn natural fibers i was just alarmed you know in 2017 how much you know for six for us to be wearing 65 percent of our clothing now to be plastic and we're wrapped in plastic and the implications of that are just so alarming um so we partner for one of our product range, um, which is 100% merino wool, fully traceable to 30 farms um, back in um, New Zealand and, and Australia, um, and done all the right way. So natural fibers for the wellness of ourselves, my gosh. And this is what I find so annoying, Lou, when I think, you know, a dress by a if you go to Netta Porter or wherever you're going, you know, $5,000 and they talk about you're paying $5,000 for design and you're buying plastic and they don't even tell you it's plastic. So I think there's education that's so a natural fibers that are biodegradable. So whether they're existing natural fibers or this amazing array of new, you know, fibers that are being produced from various things um, would be the other, the other piece. Um, so no more natural fibers, no more microplastics, supporting women businesses and the end consumer. Um, and by making everything on demand, we just eliminate all this, all this waste, you know, from the outset. Um, 
so it's it's ambitious i don't know whether the market's really ready for us yet but I, I see that you know technology from a design perspective will also be there we've also created a, a tech tool where women can design their own clothing um so i i feel just like you know in canva um the technology's there um so ambitious but i think we need to have a vision and a destination to head to otherwise <laughs> We don't Absolutely. know where we're going. So, so I'm not Absolutely. afraid to be ambitious. And I know, you know, with yourself and the whole global community, we're heading in a particular direction. And I don't think, I think where we will get to will probably be even better than what we had imagined, which yeah. I'm sure of. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you, Mira, so much for coming on. I've loved chatting to you and um, please can you tell our listeners where they can find you and your business no thank you um our website is simply simplechic.com um and people can also just find me on linkedin mira mccosick and um i'm all about sustainability and just finishing up my uh, gri sustainability certification so we love to support businesses in that area and are, and are just going through our B Corp uh, accreditation at the moment as well. So um, any other fashion businesses that we can support in the area of sustainability and supply chains, we'd be delighted to. Thank you, Lou. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mira. Thank you. You're very welcome. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please subscribe to the Lou Stokes podcast. Rate and review in the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. I'd be so grateful. Also, check out the show notes to learn more about my guests and learn more about me on my website, www.loustokes.com. Until next time, be inspired, take action, and be the change you want to see in the world.